Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, our first of 2020. My name's Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show, and on this episode we're talking to Katie Ashton, who's the director of the People's History Museum in Manchester. So Beyond Busy, if you're new to us, is a show where we talk about productivity, work-life balance, how people define happiness and success, different perspectives from people's work and life. And uh, Katie has been, for the last 10 years or so, running a museum that is very close to my heart. It's one of my favourite museums, and it's also very timely right now to be talking about this. The People's History Museum is, as you're going to hear, basically the... Uh, celebration and documentation of people getting the vote, people's participation in democracy. Uh, And it just feels like politics has been so at the forefront over the last, uh, particularly over the last year or so here in the UK, and uh, maybe going back slightly further than that. Um, We talk about all this in the episodes. It's a really interesting space as well, like working in museums and in charities, just in terms of the ability that you need to have to manage and lead in very changing circumstances, particularly around funding and, uh, you know, finding the resources to actually do the job. It's not as easy as just going out and and making more profit. So uh, really interesting space to work in. I've spent a bit of my early career in the charity sector, as some of you will know as well. So uh, there's a few things in here where I could really identify with some of the challenges that Katie was talking about. So um, let's get straight into the episode. We were trying to do this for honestly like about six months, trying to me going up to Manchester and Katie had a couple of times in London, but the timing didn't quite work and it was one of them. And then we decided we'll just, let's just, we want to just do this. So um, we ended up doing it uh, initially through Zencaster and then um, uh, most of this is actually done through Zoom. So I hope it's all right. I never never enjoy doing them down the line as much as I do in person because I just kind of feel like there's always times where uh, in person you wouldn't sort of cut over somebody. And just because you can't see them, that just tends to happen a little bit more. Um, Even though I'm, you know, really trying as as an interviewer often to just try and give people space and not sort of um, not jump in too much. That's kind of something I'm very conscious of. So, uh, yeah, like we did this down the line. And uh, I thought it was a really good conversation. I think you're going to learn loads from this and um, some really nice lessons around leadership and, uh, you know, how to set the right culture for productivity for people and uh, lots of other stuff as well, as well as all the sort of timely stuff about democracy. So let's get straight into this conversation. This is my conversation with Katie Ashton. We are recording. I'm here with Katie Ashton. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, where are you in the world right now? Let's start with that. I am sat at my office at the People's History Museum in Manchester. Cool. Um, and I want to talk to you a lot about the People's History Museum because um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of it, as you know. Yes, and, good. And uh, had, had a couple of really good visits up to there. So um, let's just start with um, telling people about what is the People's History Museum and uh, what can people see there? Yeah, great. So People's History Museum in Manchester, we're a national museum um, based in the north. So our museum is the National Museum of Democracy. So the whole story we tell really is how we got the right to vote in this country predominantly, but also lots of other campaigns and ideas and things that people have fought for in, in the past and continue to today. So it's very much a collection of ordinary people's history, um, how the working classes have always fought for their rights, how they've 
kind of um, demanded the right to vote and equality and access and, and all sorts of different things. So the museum's been in Manchester for 30 years. Um, we previously had a home in, in London, hence the kind of national collection and national remit. Um, and the museum's very much you know, very topical to what's happening in the world today from um, politics in the UK through to global um, environmental crises. Lots of different campaigns happening in, in lots of different parts of the world around equality and human rights and, um, you know, lots of different ideas in that respect. Which maybe we'll come on to a little bit more later, but just um, in sort of thinking about the museum. So the building itself is really beautiful. You've got that big turbine hall and stuff. And has that been um sort of projects that you've helped to oversee and renovate and and build up over the years yeah so the museum we had a big um capital redevelopment 10 years ago now so it's our 10th birthday in 2020 so we've got two kind of um faces to the building i suppose into our organization so we've got the old engine hall which is the historic building it's listed it's been restored it's beautifully designed and the architecture of it is phenomenal for effectively a working um, industrial building um, used to generate power for the city of Manchester um, using hydraulic power. And then we've got adjacent to that and attached to that a new purpose-built extension, three storeys, clad in core 10, which is the rusty steel. So really striking um, in the city centre and a kind of very kind of iconic building in, in that respect. Yeah, and it is just, even if you just walk around and just look at the building, it's really beautiful. It? It and then, is, it, and yeah, then it's full it's of really well fas- fascinating stuff. The other thing about the People's History Museum is I remember going around there and you've got school groups in there with actors. Uh, I think one of the actors was playing one of the suffragettes. And then you've got really tactile stuff that you can sort of get involved with and then video stuff. And it really just has this feel of um, of, of sort of, uh, questioning what a museum should even be and just kind of subverting some of those rules. And I just wonder if that's like a sort of deliberate thing and how much how much do you get involved in that? Absolutely. I mean, our, our kind of ethos over many years and definitely over the last five is we've we, you know we want to be the people's museum we want to be a space where people's voices are heard and where people see themselves reflected back in our collections and, and the work that we do so we've got a very kind of community collaborative approach to all of our programs and our exhibitions so they're not necessarily written by us or curated by us we bring the community in to work with us and we very much engage different groups in that so that's since 2017 is definitely over the last couple of years been a, a priority for for me for the organization i think it's one of our strengths um and then we won family friendly museum of the year in 2017 and very much recognizing that we try to make the museum a very playful space both for children and for adults um, and kind of break down some of those barriers that people might feel coming to a museum for the first time that you know they can get involved in all sorts of tactile hands-on experiential activities in the museum and very much um, add their voice and add their kind of ideas and their collections to our museum as well. Yeah and I was up there earlier this year to go and see the Peterloo exhibition which is that mm-hmm. still on or is it, is it finishing like what? no that's it's still on at the moment finishes um, mid-February so okay, um, cool. we'll be running that to kind of a couple more months into the new year um so this year has been the bicentenary of the Peterloo massacre in Manchester but also a UK um kind of anniversary in, in the fight for for democracy and people getting the right to vote in 1819 so yeah. that exhibition yeah. with 
kind of core set of beautiful and very poignant objects from Peterloo, a commissioned film that we created and also the protest lab space adjacent to it, which is much more about protest today and inspired by and motivated by the ideas of Peterloo. What are the things that people are still on the streets campaigning for? Yeah. And for people sort of around the world or who've not come across it, because I must admit, I'd heard the name Peterloo, but I didn't really know much about what it was or when it was or anything like that. Do you, do you want to just fill us in on, on what Peterloo was all about? Yeah. So in 1819, um, there'd been a number, you know, it was a part of a process of, of the kind of ordinary working people, workers in mills and factories um, in the north of England in terms of Peterloo, but but more widely than that, kind of coming together, organising themselves, um, establishing um, groups and working together collectively in a local area. And Peterloo was a march of around 60,000 people that came to the heart of Manchester at St Peter's Fields um, to demand the right to vote, to kind of question the authority and the, the kind of power that was held in the hands of the few. Um, and the military were sent in to disperse the crowd by the kind of magistrates and those in, in power in Manchester. Um, and 18 people were killed as a result. So that kind of seminal moment, really, in 1819 of, of the masses kind of coming together. And it was a very kind of um, family, you know, day out, lots of kind of celebration and kind of people in their Sunday best and lots of people walking miles and miles and miles to get to Manchester for this big event that was going to take place Um on that date, um, the 16th of August, 1819, as I say, people were killed and it kind of lives on in memory as being a kind of key moment in the ordinary person and the ordinary people um, kind of fighting for that right. And slowly after Peterloo, more and more kind of changes to legislation, more people did get the right to vote gradually. Um, men through to when we pick up the kind of story of the suffragettes and the suffragists um, and then women getting the right to vote in the, in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, so let's come on and talk about um, democracy and um, some some of the sort of current challenges and the contrast between then and now shortly. But in terms of your role, so you've been the director and I, I, I guess um, in Museum World, director is kind of CEO, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, for just coming up 10 years, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So 10 years next year. So the year the museum reopened was the year that I joined as director of the museum. And what was your... Uh, what's your main reflection or main reflections on that journey, that sort of 10 year period? What have been the the kind of highs and lows in that time for you? I think it's been a massive <laughs> decade of change. Um, I think there's been a lots of things have happened economically, socially, politically over that decade um, that we opened a brand new museum after a 12 and a half million pound investment in 2010 um, just before a general election. Um, and then there's been a lot of UK and international, you know, political change and, and movement, really. And I think we've seen funding cuts. Um, we've also secured different types of funding. So our business model is very, very different 10 years on than it was when I joined. But I also think for us as an organisation with the nature of our collection, and the story that we tell the museum has never been more relevant and people are talking about politics. People are engaged in democratic activity, whether that's voting in an election or a referendum or taking part in other activity. Um, And we're seeing that growing. We're seeing it change. We're seeing different people. um, So particularly young people um, involved in, in campaigns. And I think our workers reflecting that it's made us much more, 
confident, I think, in our remit, but it's also made us much more um, responsive to people and able, as I said earlier, to kind of tell their stories and share their ideas and be a platform for that. Yeah. It's kind of hard to think now, isn't it? If you if you go back to, I guess, the Scottish referendum is probably a good mm. starting point. And then you've got Trump and Brexit and, and all the stuff that's followed. And it's like, it, you know, and I think maybe also in that period, what's been happening online is that you've got Facebook and Twitter and mm-hmm. those places becoming more forums for political debate and thought. And, you know, it, it's almost weird now to think back to the early days of Twitter. And I remember there used to be like a, a cartoon on Twitter said, what do people talk about on Twitter? And the other person says, we talk about Twitter. <laughs> it, <was> like, <laughs> it used to be this fascinating thing, didn't it? How are people yeah, going to do yeah. this? And are we going to do tweet ups? But it feels like the technology in that time and those major events have become so part of how we live that yeah. it's really difficult now to think back to say before the Scottish referendum and think people weren't really that engaged in democracy. There wasn't lots of conversations all the time about everything being up for grabs. It felt like a much more uh, stable kind of simple um, sort of period of time compared to now. Is that is that fair to say? I think that's, I think, yeah, I mean, from a very personal point of view, I think that's how it feels. I think if you think about the feeling at the moment, it feels like the the energy and the interest and the conversations that you on the train or the bus or in the shops or you know obviously we do in our museum but I think everyday life you just it feels so much more um talked about and social media plays a big big part of that um and obviously there's been lots of conversation about the messages people are receiving through social media and through Mm -hmm. campaigning um you know our museum's full of propaganda from the last 200 years that's nothing new but the speed of it and the quantity of it and the fact it's in people's hands on their mobile phones all the time it feels like it's it's yeah much um much more prevalent much more kind of part of our lives and part of you know everyday conversation now um for all of those reasons that you've talked about lots of different kind of key moments of you know votes and changes of government or changes of political leader across the globe and lots of things have been happening um, I think we're all very much more aware of that. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose the other thing when you go around, you, you've got one of the best collections of political banners probably mm-hmm. anywhere in the world, right? Yeah. Just and some of them going back two, three hundred years, and sometimes I look at some of those banners in there and I just think, how on earth is that three hundred years old or two hundred mm. years old? Because because they look you know, brand new and pristine yeah, and, and beautiful. you know, yeah. some of them are really beautifully restored and all that sort of thing. But I suppose the difference with banners is that everybody's getting the same message. Whereas with Facebook, you've got people that we don't even know who they are sending often very tailored uh, messages, who knows if they're lies or truth to yeah. very specific groups of people. So I suppose that's one of the things about your museum is it kind of really shows a slightly more kind of um, simple or innocent, you know, view of democracy versus that sort of complexity that we have now. Yeah, I think it's a different um, kind of lens to see it through. So the posters, when we've got an amazing poster collection as well as the banners and political cartoons as well as satire Mm. um, that kind of comes with politics, that's all very present in our collection. And you say going back to, you know, 1800. So 
those messages and the kind of, you know, the playing around with um, words and meaning and also particular political figures being used as objects of um, kind of satire and fun, that, you know, that's always been there. But I suppose the messages and the channels of communication of those messages were much simpler. And as you say, there was one poster for one campaign or a number of posters for one campaign. And that's the message that was being shared with the population that they were trying to get to vote for a particular political party. Um, so now the kind of, you know, the digital bubbles that we all live in and the fact we're fed and given a reflection often in our social media accounts of the world, that how we see it, um, I think creates a, you know, does it stop us being able to see those other points of view? Um, and I think it's a really important thing, particularly when we're working with young people on democratic engagement, to be able to understand that what you're being shown or what you see is not necessarily the truth yeah. um, and, and what is truth etc etc um but you know there are many different versions of um messaging and, and kind of um you know campaign material being being circulated yeah i was i always think that the 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 skill of critical thinking i think is mm-hmm. just massively underrated in business but also just in life in general and when you have often politicians criticizing you know gcse or a level subjects like media studies i often think well why are they so interested in criticizing media studies and kind of claiming that it's this kind of mickey mouse subject well it's because it's the subject that helps people to to think critically and kind of question you know mm-hmm. question the media and quest, question establishment and things like that and so i was i was one of there's like a bit of a hidden agenda there but i'm just wondering I think if it's- I'm just going to say the same coming from, I'm, you know, a historian with a history background. It's the same when you're, you know, when you learn how to question source material and you, Mm. you know, you look at history and you see that what you are presented with and the kind of research you do into historical material and archives and collections is very much, you know, you you do that with your own filters and you do it with the people who created that material and what has, you know, so all of that kind of historical understanding and looking at the past and how we learn about the present and how that helps us in the future again is a very kind of this those skills of critical understanding and i think that's very much what a creative education brings yeah and uh, we had daniel crosby on the podcast recently who's, a, who's written a book um, all about biases and uh, mm. how biases really affect our thinking so if you haven't heard that episode um go and check that one out but just wondering if you have any sort of perspectives or recommendations you know, just around how we approach this this whole issue of trust and sort of faith in democratic processes. Like, obviously, you're sort of in in a museum that that talks about this stuff and um, lives this stuff every day. But are, are you as exasperated as the rest of us, or do you have some really, <laughs> um, uh, you know, simple things that you think would be useful for us to start recommending to politicians or for you guys to be recommending? Um. I'm not sure at the level of of influencing politicians specifically, but I think there is something around, you know, what we see through the work that we do is democratic engagement is very broad and people's connection with society and whether that's with their local community or with a particular charity or a particular campaign is, you know, just that you see all the time stories of, of individuals who are either single-handedly or collectively making a difference to the world in a small, large, 
massive way. Mm. And I think it's just important to remember that, you know, we all need to continue to play our part in a fair, equal and tolerant society and that that is all of our responsibilities. So continue to kind of share those stories of, you know, impact and people who are just really passionate about what they do and can make a difference, I think is inspiring to lots of people and to make us all think that, you know, we don't, we don't stop doing that. And if we voted a certain way in an election um, and a different result came out that, you know, that is democracy in terms of, you know, but we very much kind of want to push the message that, you know, we're pro-democracy, we're pro kind of voting, but we also very much kind of champion all of the different things that workers have done, that unions have done, that collectives of, um, you know, communities have done, that people have kind of, you know, really made a difference to their own lives, but also to the lives of other people. Mm. Um, the museum goes up, does it go up to the end of the last century? Is that where it finishes? It kind of, yeah, I'd say the main exhibition spaces are probably, yeah, yeah kind of the late, I don't know, sort of 1990s up to 2000 probably. I definitely remember seeing the Criminal Justice Bill and Tony Blair in there, which mm, was sort of, yeah, yeah. you know, the sort of time of my earliest kind of political campaigns and memories and stuff like that. Um, and maybe, is the Iraq War in there, I think, maybe? It is as touched well, yeah. on in the main galleries. I mean, what yeah. I'd say is what we're doing now is we're very much collecting contemporary material as well. So the, yeah. the collection of the museum doesn't stop. Um, so although the main galleries, which were developed 10 years ago, have kind of got a, a lifetime lifespan on them in terms of where they currently end, we're very much out currently um, collecting campaign material, political material, um, we're representing you know things that have been happening over the last two three five years um, and very much for the future of the museum that we continue to be relevant we continue to represent democracy as it's happening today yeah so my question was going to be uh, if you look back in 10 years on on this decade or on 2019 mm-hmm. what what's going to be in the museum <laughs> um, I mean the, from a very collections-based kind of practical loads of amazing placards um so kind of you know banners are still being produced but but less so probably than 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 they were in the past um but loads of people doing amazingly creative placards for marches and demonstrations so we're definitely collecting those currently um i think the favorite one i think the um the placards created by young people so the environmental activism and marches that have been taking place across the country um and locally so lots of um just very simple messaging around you know there's no planet b or some of the young people very creative beautiful artwork on their um placards they've been using so we've collected quite a few of those i think if we think ahead 10 years and look back to where we are now the challenge for us on a kind of practical level as an organization is that as we've just been talking about a lot of democratic content and political content is digital and is online Mm, and we we we're not necessarily set up currently for collecting that kind of material um and that is yeah as a kind of museological approach that's quite a challenge as to how we all collect born digital material and represent digital activity that's taking place in, in kind of democracy today yeah i was wondering if you're going to have a a kind of digital wall of secret facebook ads <laughs> fun, fun yeah. to dodgy sources or something. <laughs> <laughs> we've had some great we've had um you know twitter falls and, and different ways of showing that digital content in exhibitions mm. um, and we've definitely brought it into the museum more and more and increasingly thinking about our kind of digital content um but yeah it's it's so fast moving and it's so um 
yeah, it's quite a challenge in terms of how you collect that material for the future. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you for a little bit. So mm-hmm. the last 10 years, you mentioned that you've changed the business model quite a bit over the last 10 years of the museum. So can you just get geeky a little bit and, <laughs> and, and give us some sort of details of how that works and just, and then maybe also just tell us what's, what's that been like as a, as a kind of leadership challenge? Yeah, definitely. So I'd say when I joined the organisation in 2010, um, we already had quite a diverse range of, of income, but we did receive more central government and more kind of um, centralised funding, so public sector funding. And that was that was cut either directly in that kind of time, 2010, or gradually over the, the coming years. So we took quite a hit in terms of our, what you call core funding, um, but we were really fortunate. So we just opened a new building. We just had the major investment and the publicity that came with a kind of capital investment in the city stood us in really good stead. So we had a new asset, really, in terms of the building. So one of the key things that we've done is we've grown our commercial income. Um, so that's a much bigger proportion now of the income that we get through having a great shop and a cafe and bar um, and running a venue so that we have conferences and events and parties and weddings and all of those kind of activities that bring in commercial income to the museum. So that's been um, progressively growing at year on year over the last decade, which has been great. And then I suppose the other things that we've looked at um, specifically is more philanthropic giving. And people and companies being able to sponsor and support the work of the museum um, from a very small level of a £30 membership um, campaign called Join the Radicals through to 3000 plus if you wanted to sponsor a radical hero um, and bringing more kind of corporate businesses um, into work with us as well. So that's really kind of mixed the income streams that we get, um, which kind of has helped us to replenish and replace some of that loss of funding um, that we saw. And then we've been successful um, 12 to 18 months ago of securing Arts Council investment for the first time as a, as a portfolio organisation, so national central funding from the Arts Council, which has just given huge kind of confidence boost to the team and given us that additional core resource to deliver the programme and to think about the kind of um, vision of the organisation, how we take that forward. Nice. Um, during that time, have there been particular things that were really the most difficult challenges that you faced or things that you sort of looked at and thought were going to be impossible? I think any cut of funding feels at the time like a a big challenge and it's not it's not always that easy to replace or replenish um, income very quickly in the work that we do so when we lost our central government funding in 2010 it was tapered over a number of years it wasn't immediate but that felt like it was a good kind of 15 percent of our income going that felt like a big challenge and I think just lots of uncertainty at that time around whether somebody else would support us whether we could develop another partnership actually what I think it did is it gave us that um it gave the board here so we're a charitable trust with a board of trustees and it gave the senior team and the board the kind of real opportunity to say actually no we want to be an independent organization we want to stand on our own two feet we need to think about our own financial resilience and we need to have a business model that works for us. So there's been very much a move to reduce our reliance on public sector funding and grow our own income streams in lots of different ways. So I think that was definitely the, 
the hardest time, and particularly because that happened literally, I joined the organisation in the August, and that was one of the first things I had to deal with, um, was a, a quite a big shift in, in where the museum's money was coming from. Right. Um, so that's probably been one of the, the bigger challenges. But we've, we've, you know, we've very much kind of thrived off the back of that, and it's given us, I think the impetus and the um drive to make sure that you know we've got a very diverse range of income streams to make sure we're not over reliant on any one of them yeah you must have i suppose you must have come into the role and then within three or four months it's like you're turning around to friends and family and just saying what have i done here this is gonna be like totally different job to what i thought it was gonna be to be fair, I never did, but yeah, I mean, it was that kind of, it was a bit of a realisation and an awakening, yeah. but I've never, ever regretted the decision to to move and to take on this role. And I think, you know, we've got an amazingly resilient and talented team of staff and volunteers and trustees, and there have been tough times and there's been years when the finances have you know, been tricky, um, but we've always found a way and it's you know, it's brought everybody together. You know, the team is incredibly tight and close um, and the trustees are incredibly supportive and, and great advocates and champions for the museum. So it's, yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, um, and it feels like the last few years have been the most settled um, out of that decade as we've kind of, um, you know, built our success in, in different ways. But, but yeah, I've never, ever um, regretted the, the decision to take on the job. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. I'm going to interrupt really briefly to say that I'm doing a masterclass event in London. It is a full day on the 27th of Feb. You can find details on Eventbrite. Just go on to Eventbrite and, and type in Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass. It will come up by magic, as if by magic. Um, it's a full day. It's really practical. The idea is you'll leave with your second brain and all the stuff from Productivity Ninja implemented in your own way, in the way that you want to work and that fits in with your work and life. So um, if you fancy kickstarting your productivity in 2020, then come along 27th of Feb. We're in London, Business Design Centre in Islington, full day with me. Uh, it's going to be good. Go and get tickets. I was doing a, a leadership thing um, last week and we sort of got on to tough times and I was sharing a couple of stories from my background one one in a similar sector to you um, mm -hmm. like running a charity and then one with my own company and sort of talking about how sometimes where you get a huge financial crisis or a huge kind of change in the business model like it kind of really forces like it's awful but at the same time coming out the back of it you sort of are forced to confront where the value is and what your values are and yeah. what are the things that you do that really make the difference versus the things that you know perhaps are a little bit more kind of superfluous or not quite as not quite as impactful and just like really focus on like where the core value is and stuff just wondered if you had kind of any similar experiences like that yeah i think um I think of any specific examples, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it definitely does, it, you know, it focuses you, it makes you, you know, go back to basics a little bit and just think about, you know, why are we here and what are we here to do and are we able to achieve that? And I think for us very much, um, and for any, you know, public facing organisation, we're very much here for our, 
our audiences and our visitors in the communities that we work with, be that school groups um, through to, you know, people that are using our building for all sorts of different activities and events. So we've got a very strong following and kind of support. So I've worked in lots of different museums during my career to date. And here is definitely the, the most passionate set of kind of visitors and supporters who love the museum and um, and are very great champions for us. So I think when you kind of face those difficult times and you're in a situation where, you know, you know you've got that kind of love and support, it's how you rally it to your um, advantage. But we, de- we very much over the years have done a lot of reflecting on our values and how important the museum is. We wrote a manifesto probably about five years ago, which sits very much at the heart of our business plan that um, – you know, above and beyond the kind of vision statement of an organisation, we've got a manifesto about the difference we want to kind of make in the world and and how the museum is here to help achieve a kind of fair, equal and, and tolerant society and that we all play our part in that. Nice. Um, you mentioned the team there. So I'm interested to hear your take on productivity and how mm-hmm. how your work as the the director, the leader, kind of sets the tone for others in terms of their productivity and you kind of creating that culture for people to, to be productive. What, what, what do you think about that? What are your kind of key approaches to productivity within the organization? Um, I think uh, like any organization, I mean, we, we definitely suffer from that. Um, I don't know, the kind of adrenaline fueled busy. Um, there's always a lot going on. We do a lot of different things within the building at the same time or simultaneously. So the team across the, the board are kind of working in you know lots of different areas and I think that does create sometimes that feeling of you know busy 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 and I think it's important that we pull back and realize that's not the same as being efficient effective and productive Mm. um so for me I know when I've got into that place where I'm feeling like I'm rushing around and I'm telling people I'm busy um I'm not being productive um and that is the time to kind of pull back so I suppose some of the things that work really well for me and that I've kind of passed on and tried to talk about is reflection and just building that time into your working day or working week that you can just pause and reflect and kind of consolidate what you have achieved plan ahead for for kind of what's coming and I find that you know kind of reflect tools of reflection and kind of recognition of of where you are at that moment is really important to me um we've done quite a lot with obviously yourself and kind of think productive tools and ways of thinking and working so you know inboxes and emails and and trying to we're we're a relatively small team in in a central office most people um you know encouraging conversation and encouraging people to you know problem solve together and work together across teams and and not over relying on digital tools um, and emails to kind of communicate unnecessarily yeah. so my in- inbox is generally at zero mm. um, which is great um, and I never feel that pressure of my emails I, that's just not I, yeah, that's not my job my job is not to answer emails so I, yeah. I kind of feel like I manage that very well and, and again we talk about that quite a bit in the organization around um, you know, emails and inboxes and, and not being a slave to your inbox. Which is great to hear because I think for, for a lot of CEOs, uh, being a, a slave to email 24-7 is a very mm-hmm. common uh, just mode of, of working. Um, yeah. And you, you've been on one of our full day Think Productive workshops and yes. I came up and did a little um, uh, hour and a half thing. 
yep. um, about a year or so ago. So, um, so you've had a little bit of that. Um, what's your? Do you have any kind of ways of making some of that stuff stick? So you mentioned the reflection and the idea of kind of weekly reviews and mm. that kind of thing. It's one of those things that's notoriously difficult to make stick as a habit. So mm-hmm. just wondering if you've had any experiences of how to try and make that stick for you and also for like other people in your team i think for me a very practical that i you know it goes in my diary so it's it's in my calendar and and it's there as a regular occurrence now i'm not saying that every single week it absolutely happens without fail but it does generally it's a kind of touch point for me i do it at the end of the week um, yeah, I'd say me neither, by the way, right? Like this week, yeah, yeah. I miss it too, yeah. No, no, no. So yeah, that's that's true. And we have introduced, um, so following the short session that you did with us, um, a group of the team who we want to come together and just have a coffee every so often and talk about how they're finding things and any tips and um, advice for each other. So that's really good to see kind of people, you know, wanting to be more aware of their productivity, I think is the main challenge. I think if you know that it's a question to be asked, on a regular basis that just helps you to not get swamped and to not fall into kind of um patterns of behavior that aren't useful to you um, that's great so like a little productivity self-help group yeah a little bit yeah um, and so what's the agenda been, for that and how long does it take and um i think the ones that have happened so far have been uh, i don't know half an hour um yeah. in our cafe no particular agenda i think somebody's brought along a topic normally each time and that's been the starting point of the conversation. Nice. Some of that's about systems um, and things that we could do better as an, as an organisation. And sometimes it's about individual um, kind of needs and things that people are finding difficult or things that people kind of want a little bit of help with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's been, it's relatively informal, but that, that's been nice to see the kind of people who are, are really keen Um yeah, to keep having that conversation. Nice, but always really practical, which is always the, the important thing with these yeah. things, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, tell me about um, the choices that you've made in your career and, like, do you feel like there's anything that you've had to knowingly sacrifice to be able to do what you do? Um. I think, I mean, the thing if I look back on, so I've been working in museums for just coming up to, well, over 20 years, if you include voluntary volunteering and kind of the work I did when I was a student. So say two decades of, of working in the sector and the things that really strike me, I'm chairing a conference next year, the start of the year, which is for kind of mid-career professionals who want to kind of move up in the industry. And it's really interesting to reflect back on your own career and things that yeah. um, worked and the things that didn't and the things that were kind of challenging. So I think within the museum sector, and I'm sure it's the same in, in lots of others, um, the thing that really strikes me is I've moved a lot in that two year, two decades, really. So from York to Kent to Leeds to Nottingham and then up to Manchester within the space of 10 years, probably. Yeah. Um, so just that ability that you've got to move where the opportunities are. And, it, it you know, it, it's a thriving sector in lots of ways, but there are challenges around short-term contracts. There are challenges around, you know, if you want to progress and kind of um, – you know, promotion effectively or kind of more managerial responsibility than moving to different organisations is often how you do that. So I think for me, I did spend a good 10 years where that was my drive and I did move every two years to a different organisation, a different part of the country, a different role. 
Um, but then looking back, I, you know, I had the ability to do that at the time on my own um, and have gained a huge amount from working for different types of organisations. So some of those were national museums, some were small independents, some local authority. So I've seen different governance structures and different ways of working. I've seen different collections, different subject matters. And I think that definitely strengthens me now as a leader that I have done the front of house and I've done the running around, you know, putting on an exhibition at midnight when it's due to open the next day. And I've done all of that <laughs> kind of, you know, worked my way through the sector and been able to experience that in different types of organisations. But um, it it does mean you're not always settled and it does mean that, you you know, you're moving around geographically. Um, I think I've been incredibly lucky and I've had some great managers and leaders. I've had people who've massively given me the opportunity and let me fly. And I think that's hopefully what I try to do now is that yeah. at various points during my career, I've wanted to do leadership programs or I've wanted to look at my own CPD. I had an organisation that, you know, supported me to do my master's degree so all of those things over the kind of last 20 years have just given me huge opportunities and also have kind of fed my desire for development and for progression. And I've always wanted to kind of push myself to the next thing. Um, I was 30 when I got this job um, wow. as director of an organisation, which was my dream, but probably a lot sooner than I thought I would achieve it. Um, and that's been... You know, it's been amazing, it's been absolutely amazing. But it's also, I think, if I'm honest, it makes, you know, it's, it's quite a young age. And I suppose I've I've grown into the role definitely over the last 10 years. But I also now I have my dream job um, and I've had my dream job for, for quite a while. So yeah. I suppose my challenge now as a leader of that organisation is I'm, I need to keep thinking about my own development and my own CPD and my own kind of um external perspective that i don't become too heads down and that i don't just focus on this organization but i keep in touch with the sector and i network and i make you know make that effort to kind of get out and about and, and do that so you've got to continue to grow and develop and challenge yourself i think is really important and something that means a lot to me um so yeah i think they're my probably main reflections um, yeah i'm i'm really like uh i'm really thinking about some of the parallels with my own career and sort of getting getting a a leadership role of a small national charity at a very young age as well mm -hmm. and then having this period where it just felt like I was on I was definitely on sort of hyper ambition mode all the time and mo yeah. moving around for work and all that stuff is stuff that really um chimes with me as things that I I would have done but then just going back a, a, a little bit you were just saying you're chairing this um event for people mm. in, as mid-career professionals i just suddenly, suddenly thought man it goes quick doesn't it like am i, am I a mid-career <laughs> professional now like blimey like where, where does that go does it do, do you start to sort of think about um because because now when i start to think about um thinking forward in my career like i really have no uh sort of uh plans to particularly retire but you you suddenly start to think actually the number of years that I have available to me mm -hmm. to where I'm going to be sort of physically fit and able and full of energy and and wanting to do stuff like it's it it suddenly feels like that's not an unlimited pot anymore and you know there's, like, there's only so many jobs or so many years or however you look at it um left ahead is that something that you think about um. 
I don't know if it does. I think I definitely... Or have I just given you bad news? <laughs> no, yeah, you just, you just made me think about it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I don't think we'll ever retire at this rate. I think we'll just be working forever. But um, we'll see um, what happens with pensions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I think I definitely uh, identify with that idea of, you know, the, drive, the ambitious drive, and I've always had that. I'd say... I know I've slowed down massively in that respect. And I've been here for 10 years. That's the longest I've worked for any organisation um, and absolutely love it. And, you know, the future here is, you know, some fantastic work coming up and we're very ambitious for the future as well. I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose that conference that I'm chairing next year is, I think it's, it's probably not mid-career. It's probably people who are kind of at the five-year mark. So they do, the Museum Association do a programme for new entrants into the sector and they do that one for the next kind of phase of people who want to progress into managerial yeah. positions or they want leadership responsibility, but how do you achieve that and where do you go next? So it's really interesting. And I'm part of another network of, of women leaders um, within the museum sector again, and that's a great opportunity to have that peer support and to reflect on that kind of next step if there is a next step or kind of you know what the rest of your career but you're right it's kind of it's it's finite and I suppose it's I've always looked for and found opportunity and then and then grabbed it with both hands I suppose I feel now a little bit more reflective of what is important to me and less driven by the opportunities that the sector or an organisation might provide, but being a bit clearer about, you know, where, where are the areas that I would like to work in? Where would I like to kind of see, you know, a difference through the, the work that I do? I mean, I still absolutely feel that I do that here. Um, but I suppose your um, how you think about your career changes over time, doesn't it? How important mm. your, your work yeah. is to your identity. Um, is is different so I've got a little boy so as a mother and a full-time director of an organization and the juggling of the work and the family and and all of that over the last few years has massively shifted how I think about yeah my profession it doesn't mean it's less important to me because it isn't but it does have to fit into my home life and not the other way around yeah and um, as a single dad as well I think my biggest reflection in the last few years has been I'm really glad that I threw myself into career stuff in my twenties and like Absolutely. really kind Absolutely. of used that time because yeah. there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't, you know, like that thing about moving from city to city, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to do that now. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. So there, there's certain things where you are limited once you start to have kids and, and reach that sort of age, which, um, yeah, it's kind of depressing to think about, but also it sort of vindicates my, uh, uh, sort of career drive that I had, um, you know, perhaps, you know, some would have said slightly unnecessarily at, at, at quite a young age, right? But I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily see it as a, um, I think I did. I think I did see it as a negative and I did feel like it was affecting my ambition maybe and it was just making me think differently about who I was as a professional woman working in this sector or any sector, I suppose. But I suppose the other thing is it's just made me much more, aware and reflective of you know I'm very lucky and I know you're very lucky to work that my work is part of who I am yeah and that I love my job and the values of our organization the work we do mean a lot to me it is a profession not a nine-to-five job and it is something that I carry with me all the time yeah but that you know ability to have that and also have 
a kind of personal drive to now think about actually what makes me happy and what's important to us all in our lives because it is short um you know we do get to make a difference to our work but we also need to look after ourselves and have that sense of kind of balance and calmness and I think it's definitely slowed me down in that respect and made me much less of a perfectionist yeah not in a bad way but I'm not striving all the time for this kind of perfect goal um I'm much better able to understand when I've achieved a high quality output but I can stop so let's finish with the big uh question then so just leading on from there what have you learned over that 20 years about happiness and success and how how you define (laughs) um, your own levels of of happiness and success um I think building what I've just been saying I think it changes I think my idea of success as I was through going through that phase of you know the next job and the next opportunity and the, the next promotion and really building my career was was always the next thing I was always looking for success in achieving the next step and I think success now is very much my ability to see how my role leading an organization of a team of people enables them to deliver the amazing work that we deliver so I'm not hands-on in all the things that we do I don't get directly involved because I can't but I can see how successful leadership is around empowering enabling and supporting a team of people to then do amazing work for that organization and I think sometimes I sit and I go what have I actually done today what have I you know what's the output of my work and sometimes there isn't always an output or something concrete that you can put your finger on but there is that sense that you have achieved through the leadership of an organization Um, and that does make me happy it makes me happy that you know we're successful as a team and that collectively um, we're able to achieve a lot. You know, we punch well above our weight. Um, and then outside of work, I think, you know, having a, a very active um, three-year-old boy, it just gives you a completely different perspective of life. So everything is exciting and everything's wow. And it yeah. just reminds you that actually that, you know, all those small little things are, are really important. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think I'm much more grounded in the now. Yeah. For that reason, but also much better kind of reflective and um, aware of where my role within this organisation plays a a part. And sometimes, you know, good leadership is about facilitating everybody else's successes. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like being... um, like refereeing a football match well is where you don't notice the referee, right? Yeah. It feels like there's a bit of a parallel there. And, and, you know, sometimes you might come away from a day thinking, what have, what have I done on this particular day? But actually sometimes those are the most successful days. If if you're not noticed and you've not got in the way and everything's going well, um, then that's actually, you know, testament to the work that you're doing. Yeah, no, definitely. I think the, how an organization as a whole feels and operates and, and kind of connects is, is really, really important. Um, and obviously I also, you know, have the responsibility of the, you know, the difficult times and the, yeah. Yeah. you know, the governance and all of that kind of stuff. But you know, that, you know, I, I thrive on that part of the job and, and as much as I do the, you know, the really great positive work that we do every day with the visitors and the communities that are in our building. Yeah. Um, and is there any advice that you've been given over the years? Like you mentioned sort of previous bosses and mm-hmm. people that you'd worked with who who were really inspirational. I just wonder if there's any 
sort of piece of advice that you have found really helpful along that journey? Um, good question. I'm sure there's been quite a few. I, do, I mean, I remember, you know, very early on, so my first kind of full-time job coming out of, of university, a, a really um, positive and empowering manager that I had at the time who just, you know, I was only 21, just gave me responsibility, which just felt above and beyond um, what she could or should have done um, and really gave me that kind of opportunity to just try things out and to have a go and trusted in me so I think you know the advice she always gave was to you know not be scared of making a decision mm. um and to you know have a go and you know the worst that can happen is you know it's nothing disastrous particularly in the sector that we work in I think we sometimes can get quite hung up on um you know failure and things going wrong but that's how we learn so I think she definitely instilled in me a kind of you know making decisions and taking action is really important she gave me very practical advice on how to write a good cv and be good in an interview which has stood me well um, nice. throughout my career so that's always been good so yeah she she probably stands out as being um, a good source of advice nice well it's been lovely sort of uh, chewing the fat and sharing some of those yeah, tips you. and tricks and 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 thoughts and from democracy to productivity to leadership i think we've packed quite a lot in um, i'd love people to go and see the peterloo exhibition so do you want to just finish by telling everyone uh where you are how people can come and uh see the people's history museum and what's going on and also how they can uh, connect with you if they want to as well yep so our museum is in the center of manchester so we're bridge street um, manchester city center um our kind of url and our kind of handle for most things so our website phm.org.uk and then on socials it's mostly at phmmcr for manchester our peterloo exhibition is currently on and runs until february next year so that finishes on the 23rd of february we're open every day of the week um closed a little bit over christmas for christmas day christmas eve boxing day and New year's day but generally open 10 till 5 but if you head to the website that's the place to kind of find find us um, and find our contact details if you need to find out more and then your next exhibition is about migration right is that it is yeah so our next year um program in 2020 is around migration so we're doing a big european piece of work um Building on um, Joe Cox's ethos of kind of more in common, so bringing people together and, and mm. celebrating the fact that we have more in common than that which divides us. Um, and that's going to be our big kind of focus for 2020. So looking forward to that kicking off as well. And when does that open? And I'm asking that so that I can come and visit it. <laughs> it is. It's not a big exhibition. It's kind of a whole range of things happening through the year. So it's quite a different okay, programme right. for us. But we are launching it on the 13th of February, which is our 10th birthday. Cool. So the 13th of February, we're having a big birthday party and we will then be um, launching the programme, lots of different exhibitions throughout the year, lots of different events. And we're working with a group of um, community curators who are going to change the kind of the main spaces in the museum and tell some of the untold stories of migration um, alongside our collections. So that'll be really nice. exciting to see. Sounds amazing. Um, so, Katie, just to say thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. And uh, we've run over because of a couple of tech issues. So you've got someone else holding the fort in another meeting. So I better let you go. Uh, thank but you. thanks for being with us. Lovely. Great to talk to you, Graham. Thank you.
So thanks to Katie for being on the show. Thanks also to Mark Stedman and Podient, my producer and platform for the show. Thanks also to Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. And you can find out more about productivity workshops at thinkproductive.com. You can get all the previous episodes, all the show notes, everything else at getbeyondbusy.com. And also just to say thank you to those of you who have sent me emails with some recommendations for guests for the new year. Uh, a couple of them I've actually recorded already because uh, in the last episode, I, I, I think it was the last but one episode before Christmas, I basically said, uh, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on who should be on this podcast. Who do you think has got lots to say on productivity and work-life balance and uh, this whole tension between productivity and happiness and success? And yeah, I had some really nice suggestions and particularly some good suggestions for good female guests as well. Um, I really try and keep like a 50-50 gender balance and I'm really uh, like, it's just one of those things I'm quite conscious of. I don't just want to have middle-aged white men with books on this podcast. I want to really kind of broaden it out. And I think I do a reasonable job at that, but I'm always interested to hear from the kind of voices that you don't necessarily think are on these kind of podcasts all that much. So um, if you've got suggestions, keep them coming. Graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Um, we'd really love to hear from more uh, kind of just non-mainstream voices. Just, let's just give the platform to people who don't necessarily get as many opportunities as well. So um, really uh, looking forward to hearing your suggestions on that, Graham, at thinkproductive.co.uk. Uh, we'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time. Got some really good ones coming up. So um, look forward to that and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.